Welcome to the podcast, Life Lessons from Travels Off the Beaten Path. Hi, my name is Justine Murray, and I'm also known as Lighter Step Justine, as we strive to step lightly across the earth and only leave footprints. This podcast is about the life lessons I've learned as a traveler, particularly when I decided to step off the beaten path. Mostly this occurred in the non-digital era when there was no internet or mobile phones. My sometimes bizarre and always unforgettable adventures around the globe, often as a solo woman traveller, gave me great insight into living a fulfilled life, blessed with all my senses, to enjoy the wonders the world has to offer. From wildlife encounters, to midnight crashes, to dodging stalkers and trekking with tribes, to travelling with a child and around work commitments. I will entertain you with my stories and what each adventure has taught me, along with some general travel and life wisdom along the way. I also will be bringing in other travellers who can captivate us with their own travel stories and the life lessons they have learned. So tune in to me each week and let's get entertained with travel. So I left off for my last episode. I was just finishing off the overland trip of the last few countries through Namibia, Botswana and Zimbabwe and we arrived back where we started in Johannesburg in South Africa and I only had a few more weeks before I was going to fly back to Australia after nearly seven years of being away so I was a little bit nervous. Uh, Before I left I met up with my good friend Kim from Austria. uh, I interviewed Kim back in, I think it was episode 20, and she's actually South African. And so I actually met her while she was visiting South Africa and I went with her and her friends to this big resort called Sun City Resort, which is um, close to Johannesburg near Rustenburg. Uh, which is northwest of Johannesburg. Now, Sun City is this huge park. Uh, It's a big water park, wave pool, uh, resort, casino, lots of fancy buildings, lots of very much like on the Disney scale without the characters, Uh, very fantasy-type world. Um, Trying to look a bit colonial as well, so there's lots of... um, parades and displays of colonial era as well as um you know golf course and lots of things to do so it was really it was nice to to visit and enjoy my time with Kim and her family but it wasn't a place that you know that felt like the authentic Africa to me and then we also also went to another place I'm not quite sure but it was a uh, mining site which had come a tourist attraction and again they you know to celebrate the the mining era of Johannesburg the diamond mines and uh, you could go there and watch the like the colonial dances um, and uh, you got, you also had an opportunity to go down in one of the lifts down to not quite, not a working level, but you know, down into the earth. Uh, and unfortunately, being pregnant and and all that, there was no way I was getting on that lift. And you know, 
not claustrophobic, but I couldn't think of anything worse than going down. You know, we're not meant to be in the middle of the earth. So um, I declined from that. And then in, uh, was it probably end of July in 1995, I flew out of Johannesburg and caught a plane back to Australia via Hong Kong on Cathay Pacific. Uh, And that was an interesting trip and a half, but I'll I'll talk about that when I get to Asia. Uh, But so my era of travelling through Africa was over, but I did go back to Africa two more times and I thought I would cover them while I was in the Africa segment anyway Uh, and so I came back to Africa in 1999 by that time I'd had my daughter and she was four years old so I brought her back at four years old and if you hadn't put two and two together my daughter is half African so she um and by the time she was four years old, she'd been going to kindergarten and everything, and she'd already was having a, a a problem with her skin. She was wondering why she was so different, and she didn't like it. Uh, when I took her to Africa, we went and stayed uh, with uh, some African friends I had, some Zulu friends, and uh, over that time, my little daughter saw so many Africans, and she actually felt a sense of belonging so it was, it was very sweet but anyway so when when I arrived back in Africa in 1999 whoa, what a difference uh you know four years had made after apartheid because now all of a sudden all the big American chains like McDonald's and all that were all back because the sanctions were all lifted from South Africa so it was it was much more commercialized and uh, my friend lived in Santon, which is a very exclusive suburb in Joburg, uh, and he lived in a townhouse in a gated community, which is was very common. Uh, it's even common in Australia now that you know to get into the complex, you have to go through gates, and there was guards and that, and then um, and then once you're in, you're relatively safe to your own house. Uh, I I remember. At that stage, I didn't have a car, so I one day I went for a walk down to the wanted to go to the shops, and there was no way to get the shops, and so I walked down to the shops, and it felt really strange because I was the only white person on the street. Everyone else was driving. I real and and I stood out like a sore thumb. It was crazy, uh, being the only white person, and I got a lot of attention being that, and you know it's, it's South Africa was still not very safe and it was not considered safe to walk. But I managed to get there and get back with my daughter, uh, no problem. And another time there, we went for a visit to Soweto uh, for a night out and Soweto had has its um, reputation as being very rough. It was a township that got its reputation through the apartheid era when there was lots of um, 
lots of people lived in this in this township and lots of poverty etc and uh this is where the south african government apartheid government at the time was very heavy-handed in dealing out punishment in this uh in this resort this is where the um the shootings of the school children occurred in Soweto. It was not a place you went to, but I went with friends. These were um, African friends. And I had dinner there at a uh, Shabin, which is, if you remember from my previous episode, it's a it's a bar which serves food as well. And I had a great time there. Uh, and then when I left and we were going home, I actually realised I had left my my bag underneath the table and forgot to grab it on the way out and you're thinking you know Soweto oh my gosh it's gone someone would have taken there's no way it would still be there but interestingly enough it was there when I got back and and I was able to pick up the bag and that just shows that you know sometimes you have opinions of places that not necessarily are true from listening to other people Uh, after a few days in Joburg we went down with my friend to his family and his family lived in um Epingeni, which is a little bit north of Durban out down just beside Richards Bay went into Durban I hadn't visited uh, KwaZulu Natal province before because when I was there and back in 95 there was still a lot of rioting happening from all the uh, elections that were occurring there was a lot of um uh, strife it was not a safe place to be it, in the four years it obviously calmed down and uh, it was quite it was quite safe and so we went down and it's just a, a big waterfront it's right on the the coast uh, with lots of boats and ships and uh, you know it was, it was nice but again I'm not a I'm not a town person so uh, I didn't see much difference between any other sea town slash port uh but then we decided to go out and visit some of the national parks and and, you know this is my thing and so we went out to uh i'll probably say this wrong uh park uh which is uh in Natal province uh, and we also went into the uh, Tanda Safari Big Five Game Reserve and these parks uh, had lots of elephants, lots of um, gazelle and other antelope, Thompson's gazelle and that rhino, white rhino, lots of baboons uh, and this, you know, it felt good because this time I was showing Tashida, my daughter, these um these parks and showing her the wildlife and everything and she doesn't remember any of this this traveling is wasted on the young okay just let me tell you traveling is wasted on the young uh but i remember one time she had this uh stuffed monkey that she picked up from one of our travels called chichi and i all through her life i used to act out her toys as though they had personalities Uh, she loved it and um, I had Chi-Chi and we came across a troop of baboons and I pretended that Chi-Chi was alive 
and uh, was all excited because he saw the baboons and was, you know, jumping up and down everywhere and getting all excited. But it was really funny because um, every time I made Chi-Chi jump up and down and wave his arms, the baboons did it back to me. And and it was it was really funny. Uh, yeah, every time Chi-Chi threw his arms up, the baboons threw, you know, especially one baboon threw his arms up, and it was it was quite comical. Uh, my daughter loved it, and uh, I've never forgotten it either because it was just it was like we're interacting with with a wild animal, just yeah. using a stuffed animal. It was it was a, quite amusing. Uh, and then we went to uh, went to Shakaland. Now, Shakaland is a Zulu cultural village because this whole area of Natal province is um, Zulu land, and uh, from the you know the Zulu tribe, and the, the Zulu tribe is quite famous for their warlike warrior image, and uh, you know famous for its first chief shaka which is shaka, you know shaka zulu i even called a dog after shaka zulu many years ago but the zulu cultural village of shaka land is in Nkalawani in the town and uh it's basically a village set up for tourists but has all the the famous beehive huts which the zulu traditionally live in and um the people were dressed in authentic costume and uh, the the whole village was set up like an authentic Zulu village. And, yes, I've always said I'd never do these things uh, again because it's such a setup for tourists. Uh, and it was, but it was done well. It really was. If you're ever in this area, go and see it. It really was done well. It wasn't so much, you know, because we were actually in the village and you stayed there and you spent the night there and you – uh, had had their meal with it and ate the Zulu food and and um, the people that were there doing it seemed to you know it wasn't like oh, you know this was really a chore for them they really enjoyed it and they did the dancing and they were really you can see they're very proud to be Zulu Zulu is one of the one you know it's, it's a, they're very proud people and they had a, they have a great time showing off their dances and their costumes and their trinkets and that it was it was really good so uh, that's a big recommendation to go and see if you're in um, Natal province uh, as well as there's quite a few national parks including the Halulu Imphalozi and the Tanda Safari Big Five Game Reserve and as you see you know, it's a Big Five Game Reserve all the Big Five are there. Uh, another thing that stood out when I was at this visit was because we were in the Tell province, we went uh, and we were travelling around and, you know, looking at just sightseeing and, you know, seeing some beautiful little churches and, and uh, you know, lovely little styles across some beautiful, absolutely stunning landscape. Uh, but then we also went to see the two areas two battle areas from the history of um of south africa and this was the history of the anglo-zulu war back in 1879 and so we went to izanlawana battlefield which is um 
uh, oh, well, Natal province. And basically this is, a, is famous because it was a, it was a battlefield where the Zulus overcame the British forces, um, who, which had guns, and there was around 22,000 Zulus with their spears, their uh, Asagani, their stabbing spears and their cowhide shields. Um, these were the war culture, the war warriors um, empire. Uh, which King Shaka had brought in, and he'd also brought in a way of fighting, as in like a buffalo with the two, two pinched horns at either end, and then you have the chest of the buffalo, and this was their, their move, and so what happened was how it all started was um, the the Zulu, as I said, very proud nation, and at this time they were under the chief. Setawayo, and they had their land on the north side of Buffalo River and the British were on the southern side and the British decided they wanted to create wagon tracks across Natal and so they wanted that land and so they crossed the river and made camp on the other side which happened to be the um, Islandwana. And, of course, the Zulu weren't very happy with this because it was, they were now on their land. Um, and so they moved all their wagons and, and troops over and then they started foraging out into the, this is the British, into the, um, into the countryside looking for the Zulus and they saw, you know, they saw a few Zulus and killed a few and they thought, mm -hmm. oh, you know, this is pretty easy. And they didn't realise that at the time that the the mm -hmm. tribe had, the tribes had had a, um, had already been gathering for their end of season harvest, which they celebrate. And so when the chief told them this they were going to go and attack the the British for coming over on their land, they were already ready assembled. And so they, and this is the, the amazing part about it, they managed to come in, 20,000 warriors managed to come in so close into where the camp was before they were detected. Uh, within an hour or so of the, of the camp, which is, you know, the the area is, is was sparsely covered. It was more like a rangeland, with um with a big hill uh, overlooking the place, and the Zulu were able to use the landscape and the terrain to sneak right up, and. In the interim, the British had, had spread their forces around going along on different forays trying to look for for their enemy, but they didn't find it. And then while they were gone, the, uh, the Zulu warriors were spotted and so the Zulus had to attack. And they still they attacked as the buffalo with their the two horns and the, the chest and they attacked and they actually wiped out the British army there. And this is the 
very first major victory against Britain that had ever occurred. And this was the turning point for the end of the Anglo-Zulu War. In this, in this particular battle, between 1 and 3,000 people died on both sides, were killed. Uh, but it was, um, it was quite amazing because, you know, the, the Zulus just had their spears, which were the short jabbing spears, so they had to get up close. And the, um, and the British had guns. Uh, they had Martini Henry guns, so these you know, half, you know, the start of semi-automatic rifles, uh, and they also had, you know, cannon type guns on carts. I don't really know the proper names for it, but it was pretty. Um, that was it was a really significant victory. And then what happened is uh, a few of the British escaped, and they went and travelled about 10 k's away to a place called Rourke's Drift. And here they had a, a base, a battalion and a hospital. And uh, the other forces were moving around the landscape and they left about 150 50 or so British officers and wounded at this um, hospital and battalion. And a uh, sector of the Zulu warriors uh, broke off from the main group, about three to 4,000 warriors, and came at Rourke's Drift to wipe them out there. And they were just relentless all night, attacking, attacking, attacking. And they nearly won and broke through so many times. They set fire to the hospital uh, they destroyed, they had been set up wagons and that, they destroyed everything. Um, and the survivors, which were about, I think it was about um, 19 that survived, and they, um, they managed to get into the battalion and was able to fight it off before eventually uh, some British troops arrived. And by that time, the British had left. Uh, the, sorry, the Zulu had left at um, lunchtime. Oh, some, oh blah, excuse me. The, the British had left before dawn. And so, but it was quite a significant war or battle as well because you know there was only 19 or 150 british officers and they all had these martini henry rifles and the zulus were just with their spears were just coming they a few of them had guns they had muskets but they had no idea how to shoot with them so it was you know they, if they got someone it was very random um so mostly it was all just the spears and the shields and but they just kept coming and somehow you know, it was over 10 year, ten hours, this battle, uh, that they managed to hold them and um, and barricade themselves in the battalion and fight until they were rescued. Uh, in the morning after Zulu had left, they, they went and checked and there was about 375 Zulus that had died, which was pretty amazing considering the the guns as in um that's a lot of people but 
there's there's there could have been a lot more because you remember there was remember there was between three and four thousand Zulus that attacked. Now this um, battle was pretty significant because out of this, eleven Victorian crosses were awarded for bravery for the defenders uh, at Rourke's Drift, and this is, has up to now been the most received of medals in any one battle. And um, it was quite famous. There's a few movies out. Uh, Zulu Dawn describes, he you know, plays the Islandawana battle and Zulu plays the, um, the Royal Strift battle. So they're old movies, but it's well worth watching. So when I visited these two areas, so when I went to Rourke's Drift, there was a museum and uh, there was a lot of memorabilia. Uh, it was obviously run by the English South Africans. Uh, and there was a celebration because they were very proud that they were able to fend off against the, the Zulu and, you know, with only a, a small amount of people and so it was it was quite a big uh, memorial site and you know the museum with all the different um, aspects of that era uh, on display for all to see although I think I think both areas are closed now now if you went to Islandawana you'll see the plain you'll see the hill in the middle and in the front of that hill you'll see a, a small memorial uh, with um, you know some carvings but that's it and then you'll see some stone cans symbolizing the graves um, scattered around but that's yeah. it and that's all there is to remember this amazing feat of 20,000 warriors with handheld spears took on, became within striking distance of the British army with their superior weaponry and they were able to defeat the army and uh, come away victorious, uh, first ever. And yet... The actual battlefield is uh, very insignificant and there's not as much effort put into that area uh, and to, to celebrate that victory. It's very one-sided for the British side compared to the Zulu side. And I mean, I don't know what it's like today. I would hope that it's got a lot better, but I don't know. I do know just if you look at Google, both sites are closed. Uh, but it'd be nice they'd put a lot more effort into the uh, Islandawana and the, um, the the bravery and and uh, skill of the Zulu to fight off the British army and and win. So what did I learn from this besides what I've talked about with with um, 
Islandawana and Rorksdrift. It's when we think of history, we should always take into account. I do notice this is very common, especially in colonial countries, that we all think about the history of the colonists and the struggles they went through. And you know, statues celebrating that and that. But where's the statues of the indigenous people? And what they achieved, I think there needs to be more of that. Like even if you look at Australia and the Indigenous Aborigines, what about their massacres that, that happened? And there's many massacres and there's no monument to recognise those deaths that occurred and what happened. And it's um it's a bit tragic actually. And about my daughter uh, and her issues with the skin. By the time she she left Africa, she was very comfortable in her own skin after seeing so many other people like her, and I was the odd one out. She, I remember her saying, um, I like my skin. I'm going to save my people when I get older. Now, she's not quite there yet. She's 26 and still got enjoying life, had a wonderful time, and I'm, I'm so blessed to have her in my life. But... Um, It's been hard for her growing out of growing up away from the African culture, so she finds it hard to connect with it. And I hope one day she will find her connection with her motherland. Uh, you know, we don't, being white, we don't realize how much prejudice there is out for colored and black skin. Uh, you know, we're all humans, we're all. We're all the same. We peel that back as blood. But the things they go through and they cope with right from early on, you know, through school and through a childhood and, and um, you know, into adulthood that they have to put up with a we. You know, I was brought up as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. I never had much prejudice at all. Whereas um, my daughter had to face it all the time. Not quite to some extremes as what they do now with the you know, Black Life Matters. She's been very lucky growing up in Australia with such a small community of Africans. So she's a little bit different and, and she you know, was treated a little bit more special. Oh, she is special, but I always tried to find her a... any school or anything she went to that was um, quite diverse in the people that attended. Uh, and it was, it was heartbreaking as a mother to hear her say that at that age when you think, wow, they shouldn't be thinking that at age four. 
uh, but she never said it again. And so that African trip, even though she says to me she doesn't remember it, only a few little silly bits, it must have made an impression. Uh, and, you know, if you if you go to travel with a daughter, with, with, a, with a child, unless there's another child going with it and unless they're a little bit older, don't expect them to remember it. <laughs> Or they remember really silly things like where they stayed, the, the bed they stayed in, or something like that. Uh, and um, it was good to cover that part of Africa, which I'd missed in my first journey because of all the riots, etc. It still wasn't considered a safe place, Durban. Uh, but it was nice to see north of Durban, all the different areas still functioning uh, very much quite traditionally as well very country as well and, and such beautiful landscapes so when you're traveling and you're picking up a lot of things i talk about you know with cultures and trying to learn about cultures is also really important to learn about the history of the place and understand what happened and how that has driven this culture and also, when you find out about the history, how one-sided is it? How biased is it from our colonial perspectives? You know, this is definitely biased for the Rourke's Drift rather than the uh, Islandwana. And how can we go about fixing that to make it a much more balanced representation? So we are celebrating the heroism and uh, and the manoeuvres and, and this incredible bravery of all the Zulu warriors and the English in both battles, it was a deciding point, but it showed that Africa is not going to go down easy. They're going to fight. And what a, what a great place to to do it in so if you're in that area and those places are opened up I suggest you go and see and learn a bit about the history and uh and they'll just being on the ground and knowing this occurred back uh, you know over 100 years ago and you're standing on the ground where this great battle occurred where the Africans were charging at you with their spears and their shields and lots of smoke from the guns and and horses and lots of lots of stuff happening all right so I'll finish it here and uh, I'm um, we'll talk to you I have one more place to visit next episode which is down Port Elizabeth way uh, which I went to back in 2007 if um, I'm as I said I'm really finishing Africa and I'd like to get your opinion on what continent you'd like me to talk 
about after I finish Africa and that could be Asia, it could be Europe, it could be North America and Canada or it could be uh, Central America. I still haven't made to South America but I'm hoping I'll, I'll do that next year. COVID's still hanging on but I still have a, a trip to Antarctica that's on the books with my um, women's science leadership program and it's just been kept getting postponed. I would have been, actually I would have been in Antarctica now if COVID hadn't occurred. <laughs> it's, it's sad in a way, but I'm I'm not um, frustrated or angry that it's been cancelled because I know it's the right thing while COVID keeps raising its ugly head and the last thing I want is to be going off there on a ship and it has to turn around because we've got COVID cases. So let me know where you want me to, what continent you want me to talk about. I would love to hear and get your feedback. And please, uh, if you like these episodes, make sure you like my episode and think about um, putting a review up about my episode. So that would be absolutely wonderful so I can attract more followers. Okay, thank you for listening. Like always, I want to leave you with a thought to consider. What is your environmental and cultural footprint when you travel? How are you showing up to the country and the culture you are showing up with to make a better interaction for all concerned? Leaving the environment as you found it? Reducing your impact on local resources and cultures to come out with such a positive outlook for both the local population and environment and yourself? Okay, please follow my podcast if you're enjoying what you are hearing and share it to others so they too may be inspired. I will catch you next time.